Hi everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere. Himal South Asian's monthly roundup of news events and developing stories across South Asia. I'm Raisa and I'm joined by my colleagues Shubhanga, Malan and Shweta. Hi guys. Hello. Hi. Hi. So our big story in this edition is on COP26, uh, the UN Climate Change Conference across South Asia. In around South Asia in 5 minutes, we're talking about Pakistan's agreement with the banned TLP, communal violence in Bangladesh, political prisoners in Bhutan, and the appointment of a new presidential task force in Sri Lanka. Let's begin with COP26. Uh Shubanga, do you want to start off? Thanks, Raisa. Um, I actually was thinking we should start with the dinosaur in the room, um, or in this case, the dinosaur at the UN General Assembly. Uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I'm referring to this video produced by the UNDP uh, just ahead of the climate conference, which shows this raptor reminding humans to not choose extinction uh, in multiple languages across the world. What did you guys think of that video? Yeah, you know, I think what was kind of striking um like it was definitely quite clever from a communication standpoint like you know using a dinosaur to to kind of talk about fossil fuels and climate change but what was really jarring to me was how like the words that the dinosaur spoke actually echoed you know what young climate activists like Greta Thunberg are saying and i was thinking as i was listening that you know it's almost like these large bodies are kind of almost uh, appropriating greta's rhetoric which kind of also takes away from the underlying seriousness of her message and raisa it's not only the un that's appropriating greta's um, global call for action uh, there are politicians and world leaders who have been doing the same for some time now and uh, talking of dinosaurs shubanga um prince charles uh, stated that he has spent the last uh, 50 years trying to raise awareness of the climate crisis uh, i don't know maybe it's from his stand up comedy routine uh, since he flew to the summit in a private plane and if he has been doing that for the last 50 years um, then i think the world would have been better off without prince charles's climate activism so i think the summit as a whole um did shed light on what's been now branded as eco hypocrisy um since it was reported that an estimated 400 private planes um carried world leaders and business executives to cop 26 yeah and i mean um coming back to uh what we were talking about which is like the feel good messaging at these conferences you know in sri lanka you could say the good vibes kind of continued mm-hmm. um there was this uh, side event to cop26 which was actually co-hosted by the government of sri lanka where you know president gotabaya rajapaksa highlighted the country's switch to organ- organic fertilizer and he said that this was you know a major achievement um in particular rajapaksa also mentioned this overuse of chemical fertilizer contributing significantly to chronic kidney disease which is prevalent in the especially the northwestern province uh, of sri lanka but you know 
Research has actually not definitively proven the causative link, firstly, between chemical fertilizer use and chronic kidney disease. There are kind of many factors that could contribute to it. But, you know, apart from that, the Sri Lankan government's chosen solution to this problem was to just ban the use of chemical fertilizer virtually overnight. And they didn't really provide farmers with a sustainable way to make the switch to organic. Um, organic farming. And if you look in the region, even states like uh, Sikkim, who successfully transitioned to organic farming, you know, when you look at their case, they took over 10 years to make that switch. And they did it with um, a strong policy framework. They did a lot of training and consultation with the farmers themselves. Um, But in contrast, there was no such support provided in Sri Lanka. And there were these concerns being raised about food insecurity and low income for the farmers who were already impacted by COVID-19 anyway. And these issues are particularly concerning, uh, given that Sri Lanka is also facing an economic crisis, um, which is resulting in austerity measures like import bans and cuts in government spending. But none of this tension was really discussed in any detail at this side event, and it just became an exercise in greenwashing. So in addition to this fertilizer issue in Sri Lanka, uh, there is a a diplomatic tug of war between China and Sri Lanka um, due to a Chinese ship with a batch of contaminated fertilizer. Raisa, what is the latest on that? Yes, so this shipment has been creating quite a lot of uh, drama and headlines. Um, It was originally found to have um, harmful bacteria in it, and Sri Lanka rejected the shipment. But China then let Sri Lanka know that refusing the ship entrance would kind of impair relations between the countries. But Sri Lanka just continues to insist that they're not going to accept it. Uh, The latest on this is that a third-party company, which has been selected by the Chinese company who sent the fertilizer, has found no contaminants. But Sri Lanka is continuing to insist that they're not going to accept this shipment. So most of the headlines and discussion on this is kind of focusing on the geopolitical implications of this standoff. But what this also highlights is this kind of distance between the lofty policy measures that are raised at um, events like COP26 and which are yeah, exactly. yeah uh, aimed at pleasing the international community in order to kind of invite investment, which it seems to be that's what they were trying to do by announcing this ban. Uh, in fact, the president himself also mentioned that they are uh, looking for initiatives and investment uh, on renewable energy, whilst he was speaking. Um, but whilst they are, you know, promoting these kind of um, initiatives, they are also concealing that many of these measures aren't truly sustainable and they're not being implemented on the ground. So policy experts had actually already pointed out that there's a need to introduce regulations to make sure that if you're going to use organic fertilizer, that it doesn't have contaminants. Um, all this advice anyway was too late because it was only given after the ban was already imposed because that decision was already made. But even when it was raised, it went unheeded. So Sri Lanka has been, of course, saying that they are planning to transition to renewable energy and they're committing to not building new coal power plants. 
But just a few weeks ago, there was this story that broke about how a large cement company is already bending the rules to import thousands of tons of coal for use in its plants without the need for an environmental impact assessment. And again, this is at odds with the government's commitments at COP26. That's right, Riza. And at the summit, when over 40 countries pledged to end the use of coal power, Australia, China, India and the US, the biggest coal-dependent economies were missing from the deal. And India is currently struggling with an escalating power crisis as their stockpiles of coal are the lowest in years, just as the power demand is also set to surge faster than anywhere else in the world over the next two decades. That's interesting. So on the one hand, there's an kind of increased anxiety about, you know, future energy security. Um, but Modi also wants to harness the country's coal reserves, right, as part of the self-reliant, quote-unquote, self-reliant India campaign. Yes. Um, for example, Coal India, the world's largest miner, plans to increase production to more than 1 billion tons a year by 2024. And coal-fired plants are worth $60 billion on the construction. Now, India is also trying to increase private participation in the coal sector. Since last year, it has been auctioning dozens of blocks for commercial mining. The government also has repeatedly pushed back deadlines for coal plants to adopt stricter emission targets, uh, despite having the world's worst air pollution levels. And Modi has, at COP26, announced five new pledges, which are significantly more ambitious than their earlier commitments. By 2030, half of India's energy would come from renewables, and by 2070, India would achieve carbon neutrality decades later than other economies, and even later than China, which is targeted 2060. On the whole, a lot remains unclear about Modi's new commitments, and the challenge for Indian authorities will be managing the shift in a way that protects energy security in the future, while kind of preventing economic devastation in the coal belt, in which millions of people depend on the industry for work. So, when it comes to Nepal, quite predictably, they, you know, their delegates at the conference also made some um, ambitious commitments. Um, and it's interesting to, again, contrast that with, you know, the record of actual policies uh, and performance, uh, especially over the last decade. So, the Nepali Prime Minister gave 2045 as their uh, net zero emission year. So, another notable date was 2030. So, that's the year by which they say the share of clean energy in the country's overall energy demand will reach 15%. Um, and that the forest cover will, will also reach 45%. So, you know, these are ambitious numbers, especially if you look at the record on the ground, which is that the gasoline use has doubled in the last four years. Um, the kind of number of pipeline projects and storage facilities are increasing. Um, so clearly there isn't, um, you know, one department of the government is giving data that clearly shows there's growing interest to use fossil fuels to grow the economy. Um also, in recent years, Nepal's per capita emissions increase have actually been the highest in South Asia. I mean, also in terms of, you know, policies that relate to things like um, electric vehicles. Um, so two years back, there was actually a significant tax increase uh, on electric vehicles, both the kind of customs as well as excise du duties, which came down only recently this year. And, you know, so a lot of commitments have been made, uh, even in the past, like, in 2016, there was actually a commitment to 
bring up the share of electric vehicle to 20% by 2020, you know, which again seems very ambitious for a four-year interval, but it has only gone to 1% at the moment. So I think, uh, again, you see this, this kind of gap between what is said at these conferences, often for kind of uh, international consumption and what's the reality on the ground. Now, Pakistan has been making waves at COP26 with their urgent appeal to the wealthy nations to deliver on climate pledges. The special assistant to the Prime Minister on climate change, uh, Malik Amin, was at uh, COP26 and they unveiled quite a few ambitious initiatives. Uh, One is the Ecosystem Restoration Initiative, where Pakistan plans uh, in the next three years to plant over 180 million trees, providing over 75,000 green jobs. He also shared an update of the government's 10 billion tree tsunami program and announced an ambitious water management project in the Indus Basin in the next 20 years. However, it is estimated that the Indus River would be affected by the glacier melts, which would lead to severe water scarcity, hunger and drought. Um, Mohammed Arif Gohir, who works as the principal scientific officer in the Global Change Impact Study Centre, who was also at COP26, stated that while the Pakistani government is aware of the high risk that water stress will cause in the near future, there has been no effort to study its severity or its impact. Right, and uh, Tibet also came into focus at COP26. So um, this year, the Dalai Lama addressed the conference and highlighted that Tibet was the source of many of the world's major rivers um, and as a result, of course, provided water for more than 2 billion people across Asia. Um, Also spoke about how that area is now threatened by deforestation, damming and diversion of Tibet's rivers and the melting of Tibet's numerous glaciers. Unspoken in his message was the continued exploitation of Tibet's natural resources. And meanwhile, the International Campaign for Tibet called for improved access and transparency in scientific research on climate change and both a rights-based and an ecosystem approach to climate action policies with a focus on critical ecosystems and indigenous peoples and local communities. But once again, this policy being discussed could only be theoretical, given that Chinese President Xi Jinping did not attend COP26, instead sending an update of commitments. Activists who attended the conference also highlighted that Beijing's efforts to present itself as a leader in the fight against the climate crisis must also be viewed in light of its position as a major greenhouse gas emitter, and as well as the policies it has pursued in Tibet, which has led to its environmental degradation. Uh, Moving on to our next segment, Around South Asia in 5 Minutes. Starting with Pakistan, PM Imran Khan has lifted the ban on Tehri Kelabek, or TLP, on October 31st. Um, Now, throughout October, there were protests organized by the group, which resulted um, uh, in the deaths of at least 15 people, uh, including four police personnel. 
Um, the protest demanded the release of uh, TLP's leader, Saad Rizvi. And um, uh, if you look at the TLP, uh, this group gained popularity um, through its radical Islamist agenda and have engaged in similar protests in the past, uh, which included the expulsion of the French ambassador over the issue of um, the Prophet Muhammad's uh, caricatures. So over the past few weeks, a series of cross-border reports on the state of political prisoners in Bhutan have been published in the Nepali press. So these, uh, these stories basically document that after the Bhutan government's forced displacement um, or ethnic cleansing of its Nepali-speaking Lhotsampa community in the early 1990s, uh, many from the community ended up as political prisoners. Most of them were charged with the country's National Security Act. Um, and between 30 to as many as 100 political prisoners are currently serving life sentences in Bhutan's prisons um, and perhaps military detention centers. So these stories have basically contrasted this situation with, you know, the Bhutan government's rather successful PR campaign about this idea of the gross national happiness. Um, but I think, I think beyond the issue of just the fate of these prisoners, um, and the lack of transparency from Bhutan government. Um, I think these stories also raise some interesting questions about uh, cross-border journalism um, or its possibilities. So the reporting itself is cross-border in the sense that it's, you know, it's led by two Kathmandu-based organizations, the Center for Investigative Journalism, which also did the Pandora Papers, and the Nepali language daily Kantipur. Um, and the reporting covers more than just Bhutan, which the reporters don't have direct access to. So you hear from Bhutanese refugees uh, in Nepal um, and from countries they have resettled in. Um, interestingly, the Nepali-speaking community in India, leaders from that community, and then activists, lawyers um, around the world. So, um, But curiously, the reporting has not really been picked up in any notable international media or even the regional press. I mean, I was, I was also thinking about this while Raisa, you were talking about the um, shipment of organic fertilizer, the mm -hmm. Chinese shipment. That story has been picked up quite well in the Indian press. And obviously, you know, there's more interest if it's a geopolitical contestation and, and things of that kind. Yeah. In Bhutan itself, there is, I mean, I couldn't find any reporting on this subject before or after these reports. Um, I'm not very unexpected since press freedoms are still quite tenuous there. The other thing I didn't quite understand was why the organizations doing this story is reported only in English. Um, I mean, one of them actually runs an English language newspaper um, and doing an English story would, you know, surely have expanded the audience. So, yeah, unfortunate that the readership has been somewhat limited, um, you know, but an important story nonetheless. Thanks, Shubhanga. Uh, and over in Sri Lanka, a presidential task force to establish one country, one law has met with criticism as it's headed by a monk known for inciting hate and violence against the minority Muslim community. Um, so in 2014, Kalagodatta Nyana urged his supporters at a rally in Alutkama to fight against minorities shortly before violent riots uh, broke out targeting Muslims. The organization that he was a part of, the Bodhubalasena, have championed a number of issues, including banning what they term illegal conversions and halal food, among a range of other um, issues that they've taken up. Uh, Nyanasara himself was imprisoned in 2018 on contempt of court charges 
only to be granted a presidential pardon by former President Maithripala Sirisena. So this decision to appoint him as head of a presidential task force indicates the current government's support of this controversial monk. And uh, while the initial reaction to the appointment of the task force uh, was derision, especially on social media, the report that it is tasked with compiling is cause for concern, given that Sri Lanka will be embarking upon a constitutional reform process early next year. Uh, Now, the composition of the task force was also subject to criticism, given that there were initially no Tamils. And, you know, this task force is supposed to be implementing the idea of equality before the law um, and should ideally have some minority representation. But in a hasty amendment after sustained criticism, the president appointed more Tamil members and said that the task force would only formulate a conceptual framework. Um, Either way, it's kind of unlikely that the new task force will inspire confidence among minorities of true equality before the law. In Bangladesh, anti-Hindu violence spread during the Durga Puja festival triggered by a social media post from the 13th of October about the alleged desecration of the Quran in one of the pavilions set up for the celebrations. This led to attacks on a small Hindu community in the Kamila district where seven people, including two Hindu men, were killed. The violence spread to other parts of the country. In one northern village, more than 20 homes of Hindus were burned down, despite the warnings from the government. This was some of the worst violence in Bangladesh since Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina's party came to power in 2009. And this presents a challenge to her party, which is seen as the more secular one of the two groups that have alternated power since independence. And around late October in India's northeastern state, Tripura, there were violent marches organized by a prominent Hindu right-wing organization in response to the anti-Hindu violence in Bangladesh. Muslim homes, shops, and mosques were attacked, uh, showing a troubling trend in kind of both India and Bangladesh to use atrocities in one country to try and justify anti-minority repression in the other. And now for our culture section, bookmark. So uh, this month, actually recently, I um, listened to the audio version of this essay that was written by Sunila Galapati called Other People's Shoes. Um if you think her name is familiar, that's because uh, she has, of course, worked with Himal before. And in fact, it's her voice um, that's perhaps most familiar because she introduces this very podcast, um, which was the first thing that I thought of when I listened to this essay. Um, but I also found what she wrote about, um, which is kind of talking about storytelling I found it to be uh, very relevant and very interesting um, and thought-provoking considering that a lot of what we do also kind of revolves around storytelling, Um, although she was specifically talking about storytelling which involves uh, trauma and violence. And, um, you know, I just found it to be uh, 
just very relevant. I mean, in conversation with Sunila, she actually mentioned that she was thinking about it more from like a personal perspective, um, you know, in personal interactions. And most recently, there's been this issue that was raised of three uh, young Muslim girls who went missing. And I really thought about this as I was watching this unfold uh, and I was watching people uh, share their like personal information. And even after they returned, there was this kind of curiosity about where they had been. And um, the family had also put out a statement where they mentioned, you know, please don't call us just to ask us questions, but only call us if you have like information. Um, and I think that, you know, it really kind of taps into this curiosity that people do have about stories of trauma and kind of violence. But also, you know, for me personally, I think it's something uh, that also spoke to a lot of the work that I've done and, you know, the work that we do at Himal as well. Um, for example, you know, I've covered a lot of stories which involve, you know, people who have experienced violence. For example, uh, gender stories around gender-based violence or, you know, the stories of the families of the disappeared. Um, and I think, like, negotiating this kind of imbalance between the uh, person who's doing the interview and the people who are being interviewed, there's often, like, a power imbalance in some ways. And I think this captured a lot of the tensions that you kind of have to negotiate when you're doing these interviews um, so she makes this very uh, powerful and compelling case for, you know, just letting people volunteer, giving people the space to tell their own stories rather than trying to extract it from them. And when I was listening, I also actually thought about the interview uh, that I did most recently with Mary Akrami from Afghanistan, um, where she's talking about in the interview, um, she spoke about, you know, the very difficult decision to, uh, that she made to leave the country. And at one point she actually broke down while she was talking to me. And something that I don't think that I really captured when I was like doing that interview, um, is like how difficult that decision is, um, for people to make. And, in subsequent kind of events uh, that have been covering Afghanistan, I've also seen that journalists kind of question uh, people who make the decision to leave. And there's this um, somewhat almost, I wouldn't say antagonistic, but there's this questioning that takes place where they are like, you know, what about all the people who chose to stay back? And there's this division that is made between those who decide to stay back which is, of course, a very courageous decision, and the people who choose to leave. And some of them, I think, didn't really decide. Yeah. I mean, Mary also said that um, the reason she left is because her family begged her to leave because they would also be in danger. And mm. I think um, these kind of um, tensions and nuances, like when we're reporting on these stories, we don't often capture them the way that we'd like. I mean, I can personally say that it's something that is always an ongoing conversation with every story on this uh, that you cover. And I don't think that I always get it right. So this just was a good reminder and um, definitely something that's like food for thought and just reinforcing that message. And if you do work in media and storytelling 
And also just in your personal interactions, since uh, Sunil also mentioned that it's like personal based, I would, you know, suggest that you read this and um, just think about the issues that she raises. I mean, when I was reading it, like you, Raisa, there were, I guess, lots of reflections that I identified with. Um, one thing that really struck me was when uh, when she says um, how we needed a history of listening, you know, which I completely agree with, um, you know, especially looking at social media in general, you know, how reactionary we have become. You know, when something happens, we just react, comment and, you know, give our opinions. And it's usually very performative and superficial. You know, I'm including myself in this. There isn't a lot of substance, you know, just a lot of noise. So Sunila's point about how we lacked a history of listening. I mean, I think we in Sri Lanka are taught to listen, you know, especially in our formative years. I mean, I know it's a very uh, systematic and oppressive form of listening, uh, but I think it has a it has a huge impact because when we get out of school, you know, we have all these pent up suppressed opinions. You know, some of them are, you know, completely nonsensical, you know, like, you know, not being able to tell our math teachers what we really think of them. And when we get out, we just explored. And social media has given us an outlet. So, yeah, I, I agree with Sunla. You know, sometimes we just need to shut up and listen. Um, and, you know, active listening is a virtue we all need to cultivate. And... um I think the most striking part of the essay for me was um, when she talks about how there's a tendency to group experiences by type and extract stories of suffering and kind of leaving people out who don't fit into a simplified story, like often forgetting like lived realities. And I think that's why listening to people who have experienced the war firsthand versus stories themselves for example is important and I like how she kind of ends it by saying that I'm more important than standing in their shoes um we need to just stand beside them um so I thought I thought that was a great essay yeah I mean it 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 also makes me wonder because it is an actually a quite a serious challenge to you know a variety of journalism even like good journalism which requires a lot of listening, but at the end, there's also a lot of emphasis on, you know, writing well and expressing yourself well and using what you listen to as, as material eventually. Um, I mean, I don't, I, I, mean, I don't know if there's a clear solution, but great journalism might actually not often be a good example of that also, which is, which is a problem. And if you think about it, then what's, yeah, that's the thing. For That's why I found it very interesting. There's like a very fundamental tension between what we kind of see as journalism and, you know, how to kind of raise awareness about these issues. And even this issue about like raising awareness, like, yeah. I think she touched on so many very interesting issues, like highlighting how you might be well-intentioned, but even with your good intentions, sometimes you do end up flattening the narrative exactly as Shweta pointed out. And I mean, as somebody who used to work in a newsroom, I definitely thought back about on some of my own reporting, uh, for example, on like families of the disappeared. Uh, 
is one example where I would definitely agree there are there were decisions that we made that you know I don't think we ever really get it right it's not that we don't talk about it I mean there are some journalists who don't talk about it also and they don't think about it uh, that does happen but even when you do talk about it and you do try to negotiate it sensitively you don't always um, get it right you know and it's only in hindsight that you realize it but um, I think she gave a very good framing um, and I think that there are solutions uh, which I was talking about as well um, I think that you can do different things you can spend a longer time when you're like going to these communities is one you know don't just parachute in and leave and you can go keep returning back over a period of time um, is like you know another way yeah but I guess that's like like Shobanga said I think that's one of the the problems with media in general because like it's it's curated mm. there's uh, not a lot not a lot of time so you have like a five minute segment on an issue that's been you know there for you know, like centuries and they have to like capture everything in that five minutes and ask questions so this type of kind of um, you know prolonged uh, engagement with a single issue it's not something that we see in media these days. It's just like, you know, okay, what's next? Uh, let's go to the next issue. And, you know, five minutes on this, five minutes on that, article on this, article on that. So I, I think that the way that the world is moving in the, in the, in, in, in the sense that, you know, how short our attention span is also, um, and how we kind of move from, you know, one issue to another, you know, that's, that's another thing that media is, itself is reflecting. So there is that, that issue. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, what about, I mean, is there anything else that you guys read this month or watch? Actually, this reminds me, I mean, this conversation reminded me of something I've been re-watching, the series The Wire. Um, I actually just watched the fifth um, season, which is about journalism and <laughs> which actually involves this reporter. I mean, I won't spoil it too much, but a reporter who kind of just comes up with, you know, really good quotes and obviously is fabricating it. So there's no question of even listening or sitting. You know, it's, it's, um, I would actually recommend uh, watching that season. Just the fifth season? Or all the, I, I would say. <laughs> Just the fifth season, <laughs> yeah. All the season. <laughs> Just the journalism <laughs> season, yeah. Um, so my recommendation for this month is uh, Tibetan activist, writer and poet Sering Moses' latest book titled Forbidden Memory, Tibet During the Cultural Revolution, um, which uses 300 previously unseen photographs taken by her father, who was an officer in the People's Liberation Army, to show the upheaval caused in Tibet in the years after the Red Guards arrived in 1966. These photographs he had taken of the Cultural Revolution are the most complete private record of these events yet to have come out, and they were only found after his death. In the book, um, Vose's annotations uh, are kind of based on a series of interviews she conducted in Tibet with the survivors, and she describes the devastation on Tibet's Buddhist traditions by this campaign to wipe out what were known as the four olds, old thinking, old culture, old customs, and old habits of the exploiting classes. Um, for example, there's a there's photographs of vandalized monasteries and uh, bonfires of books and manuscripts. And she kind of points to several important questions like, 
how many of these pictures were posed for by the photographers, um, what were the participants really thinking but could not show, and also kind of what was outside the state-promoted public political activity documented by the state's propaganda work at the time. Um, so this book is a kind of really interesting, kind of rare visual record of that era. And I think it resonates with the kind of violence and erasure of history and cultural memory in different parts of South Asia. Um, so that's my recommended reading for the month. Uh, I have a recommendation which goes quite well with what Shweta just recommended. So this is also a book on, on Tibet and of uh, around the same period. So this is um, The Chinese Revolution on the Tibetan Frontier by uh, Beno Weiner. Um, it came out just last year, I think, and it bas- basically kind of tells the story of how the Chinese Communist Party um, kind of integrated the region of Amdo, which is northeastern Tibet, um, into you know the Chinese kind of nation state. Um, and I mean, really, is a story about what it means to transform um, what used to be a kind of multi-ethnic empire into a, a uni- you know a unitary kind of nation state. And his bigger argument is that, um, I mean, the root of Sino-Tibetan conflict in some ways is is linked with that unresolved legacy of empire. Um, so that's my recommendation. Thanks, Shubanga. And on that note, that's it for this edition of South Asia Sphere. Do head to our website, himalmag.com, to see more of Himal's work. And while you're at it, check out our membership plans and support us. Thanks, everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.